Hello everyone, I'm Naya Swami Asha and we are continuing our study of the essence of self-realization, the wisdom of Paramahansa Yogananda as remembered and recorded by his disciple Swami Kriyananda. This is a very old copy of the book. Last time I showed you this is what it actually looks like now if you're going to go to the bookstore. But I have a sentimental attachment to my original edition so I'll just keep using it for this course. Um, Our chapter this week, we are now up to chapter 8, which is called The Law of Karma. We've been building through all the the way the world works, how the world works and why. I used to give a course, that was one of my favorite titles, How the World Works and Why. I thought, well, I might as well be very ambitious in what I'm teaching. But actually, that's what this book is. The essence of self-realization is what are the laws of life, and why are they in place, and what are we supposed to do about it? Last week we were talking about a sin is ignorance, and the focus that I was trying to get across there is really to understand how to work constructively with our limitations. And I know every time I pick a topic and start speaking about it, I'll say, now this is the most important thing, because in fact, all of these are the most important things. I believe I spoke of this last week, but I want to re-emphasize it. Um, one of the things that I was fortunate enough to uh, luck into from early on on the spiritual path, maybe it's because I have a very uh, intense um, mind and I like to drive points down to the, to the end. Sometimes I annoy my friends and acquaintances and try their patience because I'm not usually satisfied with just half an answer. I have to follow it all the way to the bottom before I feel uh, content. But on the spiritual path, that's actually a very helpful quality in the sense that from, a very, early, from very early on in my spiritual life, I tried to solve um, even small dilemmas by going all the way to the last point spiritually so that from the beginning I was building a, a repertoire of skills, uh, a repertoire of experiences that uh, would endure, that wouldn't just be superficial, that it wouldn't be, well, when I was a baby, this is how I thought, but now that I've progressed, this is how I have to think. And I wanted to, I wanted to think like a saint even before I could act like a saint, if you want to think of it like that. Last week I was trying to talk about the razor's edge that this presents because on one hand we want to take the highest possible understanding and fearlessly embrace it, but at the same time we have to then apply that highest understanding in what Swamiji used to call a directional manner and realize that there's the top of the mountain And this is the step I have to take to get there, even though the step I'm taking is still on level ground and hasn't even begun the climb, but still I know where I'm going. I'm not just wandering around in the meadow. I've always been struck. I've read a lot of uh, books about Himalayan climbs, climbing Mount Everest and others. Um, I've always enjoyed true stories of heroic adventures. I, I guess I like to be inspired by what human beings can accomplish when they have to, whether social, political, or um, other conditions force them to heroic actions or whether they embrace those on their own like mountain climbers do. Although I must admit the latter, embracing such a challenge is a compl- challenge like climbing Mount Everest is 100% incomprehensible to me. But I like to read about others doing it having to cope heroically with circumstances imposed upon you is, I think, a karmic memory. So those stories have a different uh, resonance inside of me. I mean, all of us have faced very difficult things. Sometimes we succeed in facing them heroically, sometimes we don't. But the courage to um, even to imagine them, um, I think, is a skill worth cultivating. Not that I'm recommending um, you follow my reading habits. It's just a, almost it's a peculiarity of my nature that I observe. One of the peculiarities of the Himalayan expeditions, especially the earlier expeditions before people could be transported by helicopter directly to base camp, would mean they'd have to walk sometimes for a month or two 
across very hot sections of India or Tibet or Nepal, wherever they were walking, and they would be just uh, very, very hot before they would become very, very cold. And the irony of it always struck me is how just one way or another the uh, we, we grow into circumstances. Nothing ever stays the same. But even when they were walking on level ground, suffering from the heat, the objective was always there, that they were going to be climbing in very, on very steep ground in intense cold. Um, and they never forgot their objective. They never thought their objective was the stroll through the, the tropics. The tropics was the means to an end. Now, how does this relate to what I'm trying to say? I feel whenever we're uh, faced with a dilemma on the spiritual path, we need to know what the, saint, what the saints are capable of doing. Um, Jesus on the cross, cross said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He, he did not hold anyone responsible for his experience except himself with God. And more than that, his compassion, even for those who had behaved badly, uh, was um, untainted by the personal effect their ignorance had on him. Now, that's your ideal. I watched Swami Kriyananda for all the years that I knew him and had the opportunity to be with him. He was never personal, ever, in his response to anyone. Um, no matter how it affected him, inconvenienced him, disappointed him, um, caused something important not to happen. He was never personal in his response. His response was always um, what was appropriate to help others and to help the cause to which he was devoted. That doesn't mean that he wasn't aware of the personal effect on him. He just didn't feel that it was necessary um, to act on it. He always behaved in the highest possible way. Um, I've never been able, or only rarely able, to live up to such a pure standard. But whenever I don't, I always am conscious of the fact that I'm not, because I know, um, I know where I'm going. Even though I'm walking on the hot plains, I know that where we're going is to the top of the mountain. Now, that's why what, what I was saying earlier, I think it's very helpful spiritually to try to solve all problems, as my friend Haridas coined the acronym SPY-DOG. Now, Swami Haridas is the leader of the Bangalore Center now. Many of you know him with his wonderful wife, Roma. He coined the acronym he called SPY-DOG, and that meant solving problems in direction of God, which is no matter how small the issue, uh, turn, turn toward the divine and then uh, solve your problem by moving closer, as closer to it as you can. Now, I, that's a whole other subject. I won't go there right now. Today what we're talking about is karma. And the reason I'm saying all this, <coughs> the reason I'm saying all this is because understanding and relating properly to the issue of karma is one of those absolutely fundamental principles that the more dynamically, courageously, and wholeheartedly you can understand and embrace it, the more you can, how shall I put it, grease the wheels of your own spiritual progress. So, so uh, Master writes it in this book, Swami writes it as the law of karma. And the first section that we're dealing with, um, uh, a visitor is asking Master a question, a lot of these um, vignettes and, and uh, aphorisms that Swamiji wrote down for Master happened in the context of guests visiting Master and then asking him questions about the spiritual path. Swamiji said Master often invited him to be there when guests were present. Sometimes if they were having a meal, Swamiji would help serve the meal. But Master wanted him there for many reasons. One was that Master had asked Swamiji to write down the things that he was saying. So Master made a point of having Swamiji there when he knew that the conversation um, should be remembered. And also he 
made a point of having Swamiji there because Swami was only with Master for three and a half years. Uh, some of the other disciples came much earlier in the 20s and then the, in, and in the 30s and had many years of time over which Master could slowly train them. But Swamiji's con- uh, training had to be very concentrated. And Master knew that Swamiji's destiny was going to be to share this, these teachings. Um, that's what Swamiji's 60-plus years of discipleship were all about, writing books, lecturing, counseling, helping people, training disciples individually. And Master wanted to take every opportunity to make sure that Swamiji's understanding of the teachings was very deep and very clear. In an interview with Swamiji that appears in the movie Finding Happiness, um, Swamiji talks about being with Master and he uses this phrase and when Swamiji says it you can sometimes words evoke uh, an enormous image. Swamiji said about Master, he took me very close. It's a beautiful way to say that. Master did take him very close. In fact, uh, a relative of Swamiji's, a cousin, who went to visit him at Mount Washington and also met Master at the time. I put this in my book, Swami Kriyananda, as we have known him. She told me that uh, Master, that Swamiji was the, she used the phrase, apple of Master's eye. The apple of someone's eye means that they have a, they have a particular liking for them. And I asked her, I said, how, how did you know that? Oh, she said, it was just obvious. It was so sweet, the way she said that. So many of the uh, entries in this book were when Swamiji was present, when people who were very unfamiliar with these teachings would ask Master questions, and then that would give Master the opportunity to explain these things in very clear and um, easily comprehended ways. So someone asks Master about karma, what is it? Because it's a little confusing for people to grasp it um, because it's both extremely simple and also very subtle. So Master begins to explain karma in this first um, entry in this chapter in the most obvious possible way. He just he speaks of it as, as consistent with natural law. And natural law is that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. There's no necessity for a judge to evaluate and decide what should happen. It's just the way the universe is made. That's why it's called a natural law. And it's it's part of physics and biology and many other things. If there's a a force in one direction, there's a force in another. This world is uh, vibration, dual vibration, and everything operates this way. And human beings are just simply part of that. We what, what makes it more difficult to see in human life, as Master explains, is that in, in the natural world, it's just very obvious. You push something this direction, it goes back that direction. Um, you, the gun goes this way, and then there's a kick back this direction. It's just all of those forces are very direct. With karma, because you're dealing with more subtle realities, it's not always so immediately perceivable with the senses. And... Master adds later, you also need more than one lifetime to really make it work. And the chapter after this one is reincarnation. So I won't go there so much, but that you you run into a wall unless you can go beyond one incarnation. But Master makes a very important statement there. And he says, um, let's see, he says, to understand karma, you must realize that thoughts are things. In other words, that thoughts have a power, uh, uh, that, that a thought is not ephemeral, that a thought is a force of the universe that is like any other force, just like a, if you push on a door, when you have a thought, it, it's as tangible a force as that, it's just more subtle. Those who are attuned to the subtlety of it can feel it immediately. I remember once I was uh, with Swami Kriyananda in the evening, at his home at Ananda village. This was about 1975, 1976, when Ananda was still very small and uh, we had many, many uh, quiet uh, times together before, before the path 
before he'd written the new path, before everything, actually. No electricity, very quiet. And my friend Seva and I were at Swamiji's house, and I was his secretary then, and I had cooked dinner for him, and we were sitting together after dinner. And um, he was talking to Seva, and I was sitting in a position where I was slightly outside his field of vision. And a, a particularly calm um, vibration had settled over me. Um, I was always enthusiastic and joyful, but not always calm. I won't say always, but I was often enthusiastic and joyful and mentally energetic. And just as I was saying earlier, my mind was very intense and I would drill down. And, and when I was with Swamiji, uh, he was often very uh, willing to engage with me on my questions and so on. But this particular evening, this unusual state of calm had descended on me and I was sitting extremely still and quiet, just enjoying that bhav, that spiritual mood. It wasn't unknown, but it wasn't that frequent for me at that time. And suddenly Swamiji looks up and he's looking at Seva and I'm out of sight. And he says to her, even though he can't see me, Where are you, Asha? He said, I can't feel your mind the way I can usually feel it. And from behind him I laughed and I said, that's because it's unusually calm, sir. And then, he, and then he sort of looked like he was inwardly searching. Ah, yes, he said, there you are, just like that, without ever turning to see me. Because he was sensitive enough, he felt, he, he knew when I was there because of the characteristic restlessness, I'll call it eagerness of my thought process. And when he didn't feel that the normal vibration that he knew to be Asha, he wondered if perhaps I'd left the room. No, I'd just gone into another dimension. Ah, yes, he said, there you are. Master was conscious of people's thoughts all the time, everywhere. Remember the stories that Swami told about answering a question rather flippantly when someone uh, asked him something, Master uh, Swamiji was a bit undignified in his response and, and didn't quite answer properly. It was a psychiatrist and master, uh, uh, an atheistic psychiatrist. Swamiji th- sought to convince him of the truth of the spiritual path by speaking about miracles. And of course, for some people that would be persuasive, but it was the wrong answer for that man. And later, and Master Swamiji was miles away from Master. Master <clears throat> wasn't at the same location. He was nowhere around. Sometime later, a few days later, Master said to Swamiji, just apropos of nothing, when you're with atheistic people like that, better not talk about miracles. And Swamiji said, you know, you knew. Master said, I know every thought that you think. I mean, thoughts are things. They, they put out a force. They put out a light. They put out a sound. We may not always be conscious of it, although sometimes we are. Has the phone ever rung? I mean, now we have caller ID, so this neutralizes it. But have you ever received a phone call and you just know who's calling? Or you think to call someone and that person will say, I was just thinking about you? How often you are responding to someone's thoughts but you don't know that you are. You, you, think, you think it was your own inclination, but it's not your own inclination at all. It's already there. I do a great deal of uh, sharing of these teachings. It's really my full-time job in one form or another, if not spoken, then written. And when I speak, for many years, I have prepared very little or not at all. Um, Sometimes I will um, consider what the topic might be and sometimes some inspiration will come to me prior to the time that I'm in front of the group and I will follow that inspiration and it will be the right thing. But often I either abandon that or I just something completely other occurs to me or just to give you a third alternative. I'll start down the road of my preconceived ideas and then all of a sudden that direction will just be taken away from me and I'll receive a completely different inspiration because it's all extemporaneous. And on many occasions people will tell me, you know, we were just on the way here, my friend and I were just talking about that very subject 
and then you began to speak about it. Or I was thinking about it last night, or while you were talking I was wondering about this, and then suddenly you were talking about it. Now, sometimes people are trying to act as if I have some magic power, which I do not. I assure you, I do not. But their thoughts, the thoughts of the people in the room, are simply inspiring the thoughts that occur to me. Because we're all in this together. And my, my job is to speak out loud um, what everyone else is um, waiting to hear. As Swamiji said, it's a conversation, even, only, even though there's only one voice that's audible. It's a conversation between other people's thoughts and the thoughts that Divine Mother gives me to speak. That's how I feel it. I feel like Divine Mother is listening, and then she um, inspires me to say something. And I'm as interested as, as anyone else in what comes out. It's an interesting conversation to me, too, because thoughts are real. There's a power there, and our actions and our thoughts guide our willpower, and our willpower guides our actions, and then our actions create magnetism, and, and our thoughts and our willpower all create magnetism, and the universe responds. And eventually, the, all of that force generates a response also in the material world. And that fundamentally is the law of karma. It's the natural law. We're putting out a force, and that force gradually follows a certain pattern. Jesus put it very simply, as ye sow, so shall ye reap. Whatever you put in, that's what eventually comes back. Slang says, what goes around comes around, which doesn't quite make sense, but it does make sense. We all know what that means. People are begun, have begun to notice. The Bible, I mean, the, the, the strict sort of simplistic uh, religion, Christian religion especially, says if you're bad, you go to hell, and if you're good, you go to heaven. Although it's sometimes a little hard to calculate what's bad and what's good. One of my, young, my friends, when he was a child in Catholic school, was playing the obvious game. Swamiji says, if you're going to be punished after death and have to suffer, and you don't really want to go to hell, you want to go to heaven, it's quite natural to try to figure out how bad can I be and still go to heaven? Where is the line when it trips over into hell? And that's why once you start down, once a, a religious institution starts on their path, they have to start defining everything. You know, every sin has to be categorized because the human mind wants to know how bad can I be before I've tipped the scale and I go to hell? How good do I have to be before I can get into heaven? So my friend, when he was a child, asked the nun who was teaching him, you know, she was trying to tell him to be good so that, oh, I know what it was. She told him, if you're really good when you get to heaven, you'll have a bigger house. <laughs> can you just imagine? I mean, forgive me, I'm sure that nun was very sincerely dedicated, but really, it's so... Uh, well, vaisha is the word. It's like the only reason you would do the right thing is if there's something in it for you. A great deal of re both religion and education these days is completely vaisha. It's all selfish. If you get, you do it because you'll get something for it. There's no appeal to idealism or, or principle or ma uh, nobility or majesty. That's why a lot of young people are so rebellious against the education they're getting because it's it's. It's demeaning to be in, in, encouraged to do good just for what you'll get. And so my friend felt that way. He didn't care what size house he had in heaven. And at that point he felt liberated from the necessity to be good. <laughs> the poor nun had had exactly the opposite effect on him. Of course he went far in a completely other direction. But the simplistic idea of heaven or hell, and even the idea, as Master said, the preposterous idea, that a few years of bad action, that a, a, a finite cause can have an infinite effect. That just a few years of a mistaken ignorance, sin is ignorance, as we were talking about in our last session, can then condemn you to hell forever. My, my, doesn't even make sense scientifically what to speak of. What a horrible concept of God. I mean, who would want to... Who would want to believe in such a God? 
many people who come to our temple and want to learn meditation or come onto the path of self-realization, sometimes they describe themselves as atheists. And much of the time I agree with them. If that's the concept of God that, that you know, you're rejecting, then I'm with you on the rejection. And eternity and hell are certain one, certainly one of those things. However, just because that teaching is not valid, do not think that there is no natural law that governs human behavior. Because there is. It's just simply the way we're made. And later on in this, um, let me just see if I can pull out what I, what I was talking about. Um, oh, that, that the law is very impersonal. It seems unfair, a disciple complained, that we should be punished for mistakes that we made unintentionally without understanding that they were wrong. And Master replies, ignorance of the law is no excuse. It's just the way it is. A little child will put his hand into fire, and he doesn't know that fire is going to burn him, but it will burn him. And the karmic law is established for this reason. It's to teach us the difference between uh, what we think is going to give us happiness and fulfillment and what will really give us happiness and fulfillment. Because we are in this world where we are drawn outward um, for our fulfillment, not understanding that our fulfillment is truly within us. And when we contradict natural law, we suffer. We think, and this is the, the immature um, soul, if you want to speak of it like that, all the soul is always the same, but the the, the people talk of phrases like the new soul. You're an old soul, old soul, or you're a new soul. If you're new, that means you haven't had enough experience to really learn. Just like being a child, children will do all kinds of things because they just don't know any better. When I was uh, seven years old, I went to sleepaway camp, even though I was quite small. And I enjoyed it completely, but I was the youngest child there by a couple of years. And so some of the activities that the other children uh, did, I couldn't quite do. And one of them was a very simple thing of weaving together these kind of elastic bands on a small loom to make little pot holders. And for some reason, I, my hands were too small or whatever it was, but I was never able to make pot holders. So when parent visitation weekend came, all of the children had their pot holders hung on their bunks, their proud display of their work, and I didn't have any. And I felt badly that I didn't have any. So I saw that the girl in the bunk above me had, had four, so I took two of them and hung them on mine. And, of course, the transparency of the ploy was self-evident because the girl above me said, those are mine. And when I was discovered, I kept trying to tell my mother, they fell. I said, I didn't really take them, they fell. <laughs> I'm between tears and laughter when I think about that because it was an extremely poignant experience for me. I just so wanted to have them. It's odd how these, you know, children are funny, uh, but our feelings, the feelings of a child, are just as intense. And my mother knew that I was lying, which was not something that I was allowed to do and get away with in the family. But she also, God bless her, and I bless her for this forever. She understood my intention. And I, I deeply remember, in fact, I've shared this story on other occasions, just uh, because it was a, a really deep experience of true mother love for me. Because I remember her holding me. I was a little tiny sprite of a child. I was curled up in her lap, and I was crying, and I kept sobbing. They fell, they fell. And my mother was comforting me over the disappointment of the whole thing. But sin is ignorance. No, I thought I could get away with it, but the natural law took me over, which is they belonged to someone else and that person wanted them. And so we in our lives, we fall in, in love with somebody who doesn't love us back. And we cling to that hopeless, um, hopeless wish and we suffer. It's not meant to be, but I want it, but I want it, but I want it. Or we love someone deeply, and they die. 
and we rail against God. Why did you take this person away? Well, there's a natural law here. As a, as a seven-year-old child, I thought I could just move those potholders and just claim that they were mine. But every adult looked at it and knew that I couldn't do that. But I thought I could. But natural law had to take its course. I had to suffer. I had to, to weep. I had to be comforted. I had to learn. And that's karma. It's just we've set in motion. Think how many times in our lives we've done the wrong thing. It's very interesting to me. Um, even at this point in my life, there's a few times I remember when I, I really did not respond correctly. Even, you know, all the way back, something in kindergarten that happened. Um, that just when I was very, very unkind to another child, and for some idiotic reason the teacher supported my unkindness. I, to this day, I have no idea why that teacher was so misguided as to allow me to be so wrong. But even then I remembered, and, I've, and I regret it. I can still feel the hurt in my heart um, that I inflicted on that child. Swamiji writes in The Path um, about his own recollection of things that he did wrong. One specific was um, he had a, a, a voice teacher when he was 18 years old, and she was an, an older woman who had been a great singer and no longer had her own voice but was still ex uh, extremely capable of bringing um, the music out of others. And she taught Swamiji beautifully, but then in one of the lessons she said, you know, you have the potential to be not merely a, a good singer, but a great singer, because not only do you have the voice, but you have the understanding, you have the heart, you have the mind. And then she confessed to him, I'm living for just one thing now, which is to see you become a great singer. Now, at the age of 18, Swamiji was a serious um, truth seeker. It was, a, it was four more years before he met Master, but he was already on a serious path to truth. And he knew his path was not to become a great singer. And he didn't want to be bound um, by the attachment and the ambition of this old woman. So he never went back. And in writing his book, he, he says, you know, he knows that that must have been very painful for her never to have seen him again. And you can imagine all that she went through in her life at that stage. And Swamiji asks her forgiveness. And then he speaks of the fact that, you know, many times in our life we hurt people out of ignorance. Sin is ignorance. Or even if we, even worse, and I think these are the ones that I remember, you know you're doing the wrong thing. But you don't have the willpower to do the right thing. Or you're just in that flow of power um, and you just want to play it out. When I was a kindergartner, that's exactly what it was. The teacher gave me power, and I ran with that power, even though I knew I shouldn't have. And that's why it bothers me so much. I knew I shouldn't have. Even though I was the child and she was the adult, she was wrong, and I knew it. So Swamiji says that what he does, what he has done, is that he prays for everyone that he knows that he's hurt. And he, he asks their forgiveness because of his ignorance, and then he asked Divine Mother to bless them. And in that way you can, you can write the karma without necessarily having to live through the whole experience, because you only have to live through the whole experience if the lesson isn't learned. Um, if, there's not, if there isn't something for you still to learn from it, that would be a better way to say it. Sometimes we have to uh, learn the endurance to just go through to have the strength to stay centered and to go through what we have to go through. Now, going back to the, be to the beginning concept here when I was talking about grounding ourselves in spiritual teachings in such a way that it will serve us from now till God realization. And what Master establishes in this chapter in various ways is trying to make us understand that divine law, karma, 
karmic law is completely impersonal. Now you see, the implication of that is that everything that happens is fair, that karma is always fair, that nothing ever happens to anyone that is not perfectly right and appropriate for their ultimate freedom and understanding. Now that, and I'm the first to say it, is a really scary concept. It's scary in our own lives if, for example, we were born into very difficult circumstances and terribly mistreated as a child. Or if we have to, to, to see children and other seeming innocents going through very difficult challenges. Now, here's a way to balance it because uh, what Master writes about karma is that we have to understand that karma, karma, the karmic law is not the law of punishment. And Master has a discussion in here with someone who likens karma to the verdict of a judge after the whole case has been heard. So the judge decides whether you're guilty or not and then decides what's going to happen to you because of what you did. But karma is not punishment. In fact, karma is exactly the opposite of punishment. Karma is the perfect um, opportunity for us to expand our consciousness and transcend all limitations. Now, what we have to understand in this is that the top of the mountain, Mount, the Mount Everest that we're, that we're climbing, is perfect freedom perfect, unconditional joy, um, absolute fearlessness. Uh, Master put it in a very colorful way by saying, we must learn to stand unshaken amidst the crash of breaking worlds. And I think this is why, because I, I have a, a, a subconscious fear of breaking worlds. I think it's a samskar. I mean... All of us have lived a lot of experiences. I think that's why I, I like to read about people in very difficult circumstances and how they managed to cope with them heroically and to triumph over them. If I can see how other people overcome fear and difficulty, then it, it strengthens my belief that if such karma comes to me, I will be able to do the same. I have that picture in my mind. Now, what we also have to understand, which is, is a hard thing to grasp, is that we are children in Divine Mother's school, in Divine Mother's family, if you like. And we, just like, well, for example, I was talking about my parents. You know, my parents were very supportive, but we, we were not allowed to lie in my family. We just weren't allowed to do that. And my parents were usually very, very stern about that, and they just enforced the consequences. It wasn't allowed. And it was very impersonal, but they enforced it because they knew there was a reality I would have to face as I grew up, and they wanted me to be equipped for that reality. And, and they, they were wise enough to know the truth was a fundamental part of their understanding, and also mine. That's among many reasons why I chose them, is because the value system that they instilled in me was was solid and, and exactly the one that I wanted. And so sometimes, you know, children have to be uh, punished. I mean, children have to face the consequences of their own actions. Let's put it that way. They can't be allowed to say the potholders fell. They have to face the fact that they didn't fall, you took them. And even if it's very, very upsetting, even if my mother comforts me, I still have to face the fact that they weren't mine, I took them. And so, in our own life, Divine Mother wants us to know who we really are. And who we really are is the full power of the universe within us. Nothing in this world can touch us. Nothing in this world can actually take away our joy. But my, 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 we certainly don't seem to know that, do we? You know, every little thing seems to take away our joy. Somebody speaks unkindly to us. Um, our job, we're not really recognized in our job in the way we ought to be. We lose our job. We don't get to the house that we wanted. The man that we love doesn't want to marry us. 
we wish to have children and the children don't come. <laughs> we wish to have children and they do come and that makes us unhappy because, well, they're not quite who we hoped they would be, all these sorts of things. One way or another, it's endless disappointments. Or we get exactly what we want and we still feel um, that it's not enough, that somehow the heart still is not satisfied. We learn from being disappointed, but we also learn from being fulfilled. And so God is determined that we become, that we graduate with honors from the whole school of delusion. And he's just not content to have us just continue to play with our dolls. You know, he's not going to just make this little mud puddle a little nicer. That's what we want. Oh, give me the new set of dishes and the new car and the nice home and all the little things that I want. Just set my world up just the way I want it. No, God says, I want you to be unconditionally happy at all times. And so I'm going to challenge you with the karmic law because you see, it's also that is the natural law. We are streamlets, we are rivers, and our destiny is to merge with the sea. And we're just not going to stop. We have to keep moving until we merge with the sea. Swamiji tells a very interesting story. It's a dream that he had. It was in the last year or two of his life. He said he had a dream that he was going to be burned at the stake. Some of his enemies had decided that he should be burned at the stake. And he was very interested, as he put it, because even in the dream, he was not really disturbed by this. Okay, I'll be burned at the stake if that's what's going to happen. And he was aware of the fact that it's rather perhaps an unpleasant way to die, but even if there was a lot of pain, it would be very short-lived. And once he was out of his body and in the astral world, it really wouldn't make any difference at all. So little pain never hurt anyone. That's a, is how he would think about it. And he says in the way of dreams, which are sort of funny, his enemies, the ones who had sentenced him to be burned at the stake, were, were in the same room where he was being burned. And he was tied to the stake and the faggots were all laid, the wood was all laid around him and the, the fire was about to be kindled and his enemies were at a banquet table and they were all feasting and drinking. You know, he was being burned at the stake and they were having a party. And even that, complete equanimity. It didn't make any difference. And then just at the last second before the fire was lit and it all began to happen, his friends broke in and rescued him. And again, he said he was very pleased to see, even in the dream, his, his mental state was exactly the same. Oh, okay, so now my friends are here and I won't be burned at the stake. Now, that's what I'm talking about when I say, let's know what the highest of the mountain is. And so whatever karma comes to us, first we have to understand that this is not punishment, and it's not, even, it's not really reward. It's just natural law fulfilling itself. At some point, at some time, I set something in motion, and now I'm reaping that. Now I'm beginning to understand what it feels like to be on the receiving end of that kind of action. Or... I'm getting the opportunity because I wanted it in my soul and I was ready for it according to divine law. I'd grown to the point, the point where I needed this kind of challenge and my soul knew it needed to be challenged like this. If you go to school and you always stay in a grade one or two levels below the work that you can do, what is the point of that? You have to always be just right at the edge of what you don't know and being given the exhilarating opportunity to expand ourselves to understand more. Sometimes that exhilarating opportunity uh, comes as pain. But Swamiji said once, sometimes pain is the fastest route to freedom. That's a very interesting statement. If we, do we want, you know, it's the fastest way to get where we're going because it challenges us to raise our energy to meet it dynamically. And all of karma is just the opportunity to meet it dynamically. You know, this opportunity has come to me. What do I believe is true? Who do I think I am? Where does my happiness come from? What is lastingly real? And how do I solve this problem in the direction of God? So that state of rebellion I mean, it still may be difficult to overcome it, but if we cannot rebel against it 
at least all our energy will be going toward the solution. Or if we do find ourselves rebelling, recognize that the rebellion itself is part of the difficulty. Swamiji tells a story of a time when he was with Master and he aligned himself with a, a group within the ashram which was very critical of everything that was going on and Swamiji became a spokesperson for this um, well group of this this negative uh, this small cadre of negative people and they they were negative because instead of really finding positive ways to move um, the situations forward they were just criticizing and telling everyone else that they were wrong and Swamiji accidentally got uh, aligned with them and uh, did some things that he later regretted. And then when Master was uh, uh, scolding the monks for their behavior he, in, that, in that group, he, he, he directed almost all of his scolding right at Swamiji. Even though Swamiji had been a very peripheral part of the group, and hadn't really been the instigators or anything, but most of the scolding ended up being right at Swamiji. And at first, Swamiji was, he was very rebellious. Why are you talking to me like this? I had very little to do with it. He kept justifying and, I mean, inwardly. He was silent outwardly, but inwardly he was resisting the correction. And then afterwards, when he reflected on it, he realized it really didn't matter um, what the details were. If Master wanted to scold him, he should open his heart and mind and accept it. And so he wrote to Master, um, scold me more often. And Master understood that Swami had understood that we have to overcome all rebellion against what comes to us. And we may it may be appropriate to speak up, but we always have to speak up with detachment and respect and not with self-justification. Because the karma may be to speak up, it's not that we always should be passive in the face of karma. We have to understand and behave appropriately, but to rebel against it is something quite different. We have to be genuinely interested. Wow, I wonder what I'm supposed to learn from this. And then try to figure out, am I supposed to be courageous and stand up and speak my mind? If that's what I'm supposed to do, I need to do it. Am I supposed to just be silent and just accept this as maybe not exactly factually true, but nonetheless karmically true? And also... You see, when we accept that karma is fair, we can live in this world so much more easily. People get tossed about all the time because, well, this is early Dwapara on planet Earth. And there's, there's a lot of evil here. There's just a lot of genuine evil. And a lot of genuine evil has to be fought. And a lot of genuine evil gets to have its day. Master, there's one of the... Um, entries in this that happened obviously during the Korean War. And the whole question of whether there's, it's ever justified to kill and the question of whether it's justified to kill insects. Do you get bad karma for kill, killing insects? And in Autobiography of a Yogi, Sri Yukteswar talks about you know, the karma you get from swatting a mosquito. But then Master comes back and says, you must kill these bugs because whenever these pests, as he calls them, are allowed to proliferate, there's always more disease and more, and more death and more sickness and more filth. He said, you, you have to be dynamic. The, the human body has to be protected. It has the spiritual potential that no other physical form has, and therefore it's a value, and you have to clear the way for it to survive. And then even in the question of killing other human beings, if... Uh, a madman comes and is going to kill many people, It's the righteous action is to kill that man first. You can't just um, refuse um, to correct the wrong that's right in front of you. And then Master was asked specifically about the war in Korea. And he says, it's an evil that has to be stopped, else the whole world will be enslaved. Master was very strong against communism because it's atheistic. It, it, it's materialistic, it, it's dehumanizing. It does not respect the innate dignity and value of every human life, but just wantonly kills and destroys. I mean, the, the countries that have been under communist rule have murdered millions of their own citizens. I mean, these are very 
serious and historical facts because they're adhering to a philosophy that simply allows them to do it. In this sense, I'll, I'll mention also what's in this book. People, someone asked Master about, is all karma individual? Or do, do groups and nations and families have karma? And Master said yes, because they act as an entity. And he said how powerfully the whole country is affected by the karma depends on how much everyone participated in it. And Master himself said, and he said this emphatically many times, America will not be defeated when it when attacked by her enemies. And he predicted a time which has not yet come when war would come to us, that our enemies would attack us. But he said American karma, even though there have been mistakes, is fundamentally good and the karma of her enemies is not good. So America will ultimately, in, in the end, will, will triumph, although the battle, many say, may be long and hard. But then Master talks about um, the reality of righteous war. When you're defending your country from invasion, when in Korea you're really trying to stop an evil pr from proliferating, or in the Second World War when um, the uh, Nazi philosophy uh, was, was so degraded, then people of righteousness simply had to stand up. And, it, and even if you had to kill people who in themselves may have been innocent, everyone was swept up in the group karma. Now, just as a little word about group karma, which is you have to really understand, it's not like Jews or Germans or um, Tutsis or uh, Muslims or anything like that. It's not like uh, the same souls are always uh, those people. It's a vibration of consciousness into which souls will be born if that vibration of consciousness and the karma of the group or the nation or the place matches the experiences that they need to have individually. So the, the Germanic willpower and slightly militaristic attitude, the, the Jewish um, attraction for prejudice and hardship, which has you know, been their characteristic. The uh, American Indians at the time when the American Indian culture was going to end, all of these are karmic experiences and vibrations that souls are drawn into because it's exactly the experience they need. And so then you become subject to that group or national karma insofar as it's, uh, it matches your individual karma. And Master said, but if your individual karma is too distinctly different from the group or the mass karma, you will be spared. You'll be, you'll be drawn out. You'll be miraculously saved. Um, there was a, an airplane that flew from Chicago to California, and this was quite a number of years ago, and that plane went down and every single person on it was killed. And as it happened, the mother of a woman who lived at Ananda, lived in Chicago, and had a ticket on that very flight. But her daughter just suddenly sort of thought, you know, this is not really a convenient time for my mother to come. And it wasn't even that, mother, I have a feeling you shouldn't get on that plane. It just proved inconvenient. And she called her mother and said, Mom, this really isn't a good time for you to come. Why don't you wait and come another time? So her mother canceled her ticket. And the whole plane went down. It, 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 she had the karma to have bought the ticket. She was being drawn into the mass karma, but her individual karma to live was stronger. And so as a result, conditions developed. Um, that's not the only incident. You, you often hear a story when a plane goes down, as an example, of the people who miss the plane. Their car broke down. The taxi wasn't there. All these things happened. And they were so irritated at the time, but it was really their good karma that was holding them out of that. Now, when it comes to karma, and this is a very important concept, the only way I can put it is, Master was not sentimental. He was very, very impersonal. It's like the mosquitoes have to die, they're evil. And he actually spoke of many insects that are, that are pestilential to human life. He said sometimes they swarm from dark planets. He says influenza, the, the influenza germs, he said once are an invasion from a darker planet and they invade this planet 
um, to die. I mean, they're, they, they're coming here and their evil karma will have them all be annihilated. I mean, you just don't know even what to think. And so pestilential creatures, they have inhabited those bodies and they need to be wiped out. He's very unsentimental about it. It's, it's just the way it has to be done. And Krishna and the Bhagavad Gita, the whole story of righteous war, Arjuna's very upset because he's, he's having to go to war with his cousins and having to kill people who are close to him. Now it's allegorical, but it's also literal. No, this has to be done. This is the karma of the situation. It has to be done. And it's not that we do it um, without an awareness of the poignancy of the situation. But we don't allow that poignancy to distract us from the essential principles that are involved. Baxter talked about a time when someone laid a little baby in his arms. And everybody thinks of a baby as innocent. And this is where reincarnation comes in, and that's what we'll talk about next in the next session. But somebody laid the little baby in his arms, and Master looked at it, and he saw, as he described it, the brought-over consciousness of a murderer. So instead of holding this little cooing baby, he knows that he's holding a man who, who committed a violent and terrible act. That's who he's holding. And Master said he almost dropped the baby, but realized that he could keep holding it there. There's nothing sentimental about it. Oh, look at this soul. This soul has the karma of murder. He may be a darling little child at this point, but he's a murderer. That's just who he is. Oh, you know, these soldiers have the karma to be working for an evil destiny. And if I am called uh, into a righteous war, then we have to just face each other and do, do what has to be done. And don't mistake mere sentimentality for high principles. That's what the Bhagavad Gita is about when Krishna speaks to Arjuna. You're just being soft. You're just being cowardly. And so sometimes the law of karma demands of us that we just understand these very difficult things have happened because it's what everyone needs. And I don't like it, and I wish Divine Mother didn't treat us like this, but she knows what she's doing. Once one of Master's disciples, when Master was suffering a great deal physically, the disciple said, Oh, Divine, why does Divine Mother treat you this way? And Master drew himself up and very sternly said, Don't ever speak ill of my Divine Mother. Because he knew everything was happening exactly as it had to happen. And to even the, in the slightest way rebel against God, you're rebelling against natural law. And so, yeah, this is tough. You can say that. You can say, I don't know if I have the strength to do this, Lord. You have to help me. You can say that. You can crawl into Divine Mother's arms and you can cry all you want. But in the end, you have to get up and face it. Because if it was given to you, you're going to have to face it. As one of my friends said once, it's just not that easy to lie down and die. We try to lie down and die, but after a while we get bored or hungry or restless or something, and we get up and face it. And the, the more we just accept, I remember once David was in a position where he was assigning me work. It was not a relationship that was really the best one for our marriage, so it didn't last very long. It was when we still lived at Ananda Village and he was in charge of the department I was working in. But he came and a certain assignment was given to me and I was very uh, underconfident. I didn't really believe that I could handle that assignment well and so I was quite upset about it. And him, seeing me so upset, tried to soften the blow and acted as if, well, maybe there's a choice, you know, maybe I can talk to someone and you won't really have to do this. And I said, no, the problem is I know I have to do it. That's why I'm so upset. If I thought I could get out of it, that would be another way of looking at this. But no, I have to do that. And so this is how we have to look at our karma. When Sister Gyanamata was praying, she said she saw a certain karmic challenge coming to her. And for a moment, she wanted to be able to avoid it. But then she realized, no, there's no, there's no hope in that. God sends me exactly what I need. And then she prayed with great courage, you know, dear Lord, change no circumstance of my life, change me. And that's what the natural law is about. If these are my, this is my destiny, karma is always fair. Show me, Lord, 
how I can expand my heart, my mind, and my spirit and em embrace with, with calm acceptance and joy whatever it is that you are giving me. God bless you.